The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 6, and uh, we're going to start in verse 30 together. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, we have them for free. We want everyone that doesn't have one and wants one to have one. So you can take that home with you. It's our gift to you. Uh, You can ask an usher after service, or we have them also. uh, There's a room right across the back hall there, uh, and you can get one there. Uh, If you don't have a way to follow along as we read God's Word today, if you don't have an app or a Bible, the verses will be on the screens behind me. We want everyone to be able to participate, and so uh, we've got you covered. We are going to continue tonight in our series focusing on the miracles of Jesus and what they teach us about our God. Uh, Though our our main objective is to learn about the character and nature of our creator, uh, we have also observed some really profound insights into how we can and should relate to him through these miracle accounts. The basic premise being in Colossians and a few other places, the Bible says that Jesus is the very expressed image and reflection of the character and nature of God. And so the way Jesus deals with people... Uh, And the way he handles situations tells us exactly how God would do it. And so we can learn a lot about God by observing Jesus' life and ministry. And so that's what we're doing. We're paying attention to that. And um, it's been a blessing thus far. I'm excited about tonight. Tonight we're going to study together the miracle commonly referred to as the feeding of the 5,000. Now we know uh, right off the bat from Matthew's account of that miracle that it was 5,000 men, but there were also women and children. So we don't have a definitive count of all the people. Um, Estimates vary, right? So those are the facts. Part of the reason why that might be is just due to the sheer difficulty of the task of trying to count them all. If if there's 5,000 men and you're assuming then there's many family units, you could be upwards of 10, 12, even 15,000 people there. That's a, a monumental task to count without modern technology. And so uh, they may have counted the men and just settled there because they wanted to have an accurate number of something. It would have taken them days probably to try to count everybody. So we know there was 5,000 men. Uh, a whole bunch of people were here for this event. This was not done in some corner. A bunch of people saw it, which is pretty cool. Uh, there are several reasons. I want you to hear these before we read this miracle. Several reasons for us to conclude that this miracle has special significance. Now, every time Jesus either interrupts the laws of nature or does something extravagant by God's power to to meet a need, it's always special. However, this miracle, even above the others, seems to have special significance. I'll give you a couple pieces of evidence for that. The first is this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle aside from the resurrection of Christ that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, so for them, this was important that, that it made the cut. Uh, the second thing I would say is uh, there's a lot of like catacombs and early places where Christians met. A lot of times it was kind of underground and off the way because they were being persecuted, but there's been many drawings found in those places on the walls of uh, the loaves and the fishes that are depicted in this story. There's also several examples uh, of early Christian art that also depict this event and or the elements of this event. And so clearly in the minds of the early church, uh, also in the minds of the apostles, this miracle has some really special significance. And so I think as we go through it tonight, we're going to see some of the beauty of that and why that is, which I'm real excited about. 
Uh, so let's go ahead and read Mark's account of this event, and we'll see what the Lord wants to teach us, okay? So we're in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Okay, they had just returned from being sent out on mission by Jesus to go preach the kingdom, all right? So they're returning. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. I can relate to that. Uh, they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities, and got there ahead of them. Uh, side note, when I pray for revival and a movement of God uh, to sweep across our land, this is one of the things I think about. Uh, these folks just recognized that Jesus was out in that boat, and it says the cities emptied out, and people ran on foot to try to gauge where he was at and get there. Uh, Jesus has the power to draw people to himself. If we're faithful to preach his word, uh, I believe he's, he's got the power to move upon people's hearts and draw them to him, and I'm looking for that. I'm looking for this kind of movement right here. Cities emptying out just to get to the Lord. It's exciting for me. I hope it is for you. Uh, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate. It is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. When they found out, they said five and two fish. We know from John's account of this that that belonged to a little boy who was willing to give it up, right? The equivalent of a Hebrew Lunchable. And uh, this is what they're working with, okay? And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. He divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces, and also of the fish. There were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Praise God for his word. Uh, there's so much here, uh, and I, I know I say this often, but I just want you to know, there's no way we will be able to touch all of the depth and beauty that is contained within just this account. Uh, but we're going to do our best to draw some, some beauty and truth out of this. So the first thing I think we can observe from this, or we're going to observe, is that ministry with Jesus is life-giving. Ministry with Jesus is life-giving. I want to call your attention to the fact that the disciples, as this account begins, they are tired and needed rest. We see that in verses 30 and 32. Uh, they just got back from journeying. They had been going around to all the towns preaching. They, they'd come back. They had reported to Jesus. Obviously, they're tired because the master tells them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Uh, Jesus obviously wasn't a slouch. He was a mission-minded guy, right? He said, I got to do the works of my father while it's daylight. He wasn't about messing around, uh, but he also knew that there was absolutely need and time for rest. Uh, it, it's also clear from verse 36 that the disciples at this point because probably of their fatigue, they were ready to get rid of their crowds. I'm just going to read that to you again. Here's, here's what they come and say to Jesus. Uh, first of all, they're like, you know, this place is desolate. It's getting late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. You've got to think about, these guys are itinerant 
ministers, they're traveling with Jesus. Uh, that's, that's tough in and of itself, but then the crowds just keep coming, right? It said before that even that the people were coming and going to the degree they didn't even have time to stop and eat. They get, and, and finally they hear from Jesus, okay, boys, let's get some rest. They jump in the boat, what happens? People track them down like a bloodhound. They get out of the boat and boom, there's another crowd bigger than the one before. And so they're, they're probably a little perturbed at this moment. And, you know, we, we can look at them judgmentally that way, but, you know, Sometimes for some of us, if we don't eat every three and a half hours, we get a little hangry ourselves, right? So we can understand these guys haven't eaten, haven't been sleeping good, they're traveling a lot, and so they're on edge, and uh, they're getting a little bit wore out. A lot of this, though, so I want to I not be too hard them, but on them, but part of this, I think we can draw from the text, is, is largely because they were still even this deep into traveling with Jesus, being with Jesus, seeing the miracles he had performed they are still relying on their own strength and their own resources. I think this is part of why they're so wore out. Uh, that meant that this crowd, for them, looked like a task to accomplish instead of a group of people to love. It's the difference between the way the disciples saw this and the way Jesus saw this. I'm, I'm just going to call your attention to verse 37 as, as I validate that point, okay? Uh, he says, uh, but he answered to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And I don't, sometimes it's hard to gauge tone in the scriptures, but this is a little bit of sass coming from the disciples. Now, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history, the entirety of the scriptures compiled for us. Hopefully we're not giving God much sass, right? Uh, but these guys are still working out what's going on. And they're real tired, and this is kind of a sassy answer. You want us to go spend 200 denarii on bread? That may not mean a whole lot to us. That's like roughly six months of income. Uh, and if you go to John's account about this, actually, Jesus questions Philip about it specifically. What, what do you think we should do here uh, as a part of this discourse? Probably because Philip was from that area around Bethsaida. And uh, he's, he, he, he actually lays out, like, that, that's a lot of money, and we're still not going to have enough to give much of anything to everybody, right? So... The disciples clearly, to some degree, are still, they're, they're looking at the picture. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. What do they go to? Do they think, well, he's healed all these people and he's done these other incredible miracles? Is their first thought, okay, well, maybe he's going to provide something here. No, they start getting in their money bags and figuring out, okay, what do we got? You know, they're counting denarii and thinking, man, it's going to take, to give everyone a morsel, it's going to take us six months of, of money. What, is that really what you want us to do, Jesus? And so, they're feeling a little snappy, but it's, it's partially, and they're exhausted, but it's partially because they're still stuck on their resources, what they have to put into the uh, situation. Every time our focus is on what we can accomplish with our own intellect and resources, which, let's be honest, are limited, we will find ourselves exhausted by the mission Jesus has given us. Every time we are relying on our own intellect and resources, we will find ourselves exhausted by this great mission Jesus has given us, uh, which, of course, is to, first of all, love God, to love people, and then to go into all of this world and make disciples and preach the gospel. That's a monumental task, impossible without the help of God. And here again, we see Jesus putting the disciples in a situation to learn this principle, because they're going to have to get this, uh, because his plan is not to be with them forever. His plan is to continue out his mission, which is to die on the cross rise from death, and ascend to the Father. And so he's prepping them. And, and, and going through this series on miracles, I have seen perhaps in a more vibrant way than I ever had before the intentionality of Jesus, how in all of these things, especially if you look at uh, 
John's account of this miracle, again, I know I keep referencing that, but uh, it contrasts maybe the most with the others, so it gives information we don't see in the others. Uh, it, it says that when Jesus was asking Philip what he should do, John even tells you Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he still asked the question. He's, he's setting it up. He's doing it on purpose. Why do I keep pointing that out to you throughout this miracle series? Uh, partially because many times we find ourselves frustrated because we don't give any room for God doing that, right? Like we, we, we don't see that potentially that this, what we're aware of right in this moment, what God is doing with us, what he's given us and, and what we're dealing with, the situations we find ourselves in, the circumstances, he, he can be setting us up. He can be doing what is necessary to mold and shape us and make us into what he needs us to be in the next season. And so he's intentional. He was doing it with these. Jesus was building men to be gospel missionaries. And he's building you into something. So I just want you to think about that the next time you're frustrated. Maybe you can't see all that God's working. Jesus knew what he was doing here. He was doing something on purpose. He was going to, he's teaching them something in the midst of wouldn't it be enough, right, if Jesus was just doing this awesome miracle? Yes, if he didn't have an underlying motive and something else he's working out, but, but he does, uh, and he does with us as well. That's, that's encouraging to me, because sometimes I don't know what's going on. I don't know about you. It, maybe you've got it all figured out already, and then please meet me afterwards and help me out, because sometimes I'm struggling. Sometimes I can't see. All the dots aren't connected for me. Uh, but because of things like this, I'm able to rest and trust that Jesus does. And so if he sees the dots, I, I can keep moving forward in faith. As we, re, as we learn to rely more and more upon our Savior and the power of his spirit, we will be energized by obedient service instead of exhausted by it. You see the difference? This, these guys, are they're, they're tired, they're struggling, and then Jesus says, you guys feed this crowd. You can understand a little bit where the snappy response came from. Part of where that came from was they weren't looking to Jesus. They didn't think about his resources. They, got, they, were, they felt more exhausted. They, they felt more overwhelmed. And we oftentimes do that. And I'm not talking about just ministry-specific, very, you know, kind of gospel-centered activity uh, in a very overt way. I'm talking about even just the mission of, of loving our families well, right? And just doing, doing the basic things that it takes to live all of which, of course, is a part of God's redemptive plan, and, and we should be intentional with all of it. However, uh, man, that, that exhaustion really sets in the more and more we rely only on what we can see or what we think we have as opposed to looking to Jesus and what he brings to the table. We're looking at our limited resources instead of realizing Jesus has unlimited resources, right? All of a sudden, that changes the dynamic, makes it less daunting, makes it less overwhelming, uh, we often buy into this false notion that obeying God by ministering to and caring for others is always going to wear us out. However, Jesus said in Matthew 11 that his burden is light. I think about that often in contrast. When Jesus says, my, you know, my yoke is light, my burden is light, uh, come and follow me. For a lot of people, they look at Christianity. They look at what it means to follow Jesus. They look at scriptures that say things like, if you love me, right? Book of John, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And then they begin to think of what, it all, what all it is that God requires of us in, in service and obedience to him, and, and, and it doesn't look light to them. I think often that's because we, we don't understand the contrast. The contrast is, what, 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 what is the other option? We can, we can carry uh, the, the beautiful burden of, by the power of the Spirit of God, being 
salt and light in the earth, right? That is the burden that Christ has set upon us. And if, if we are trusting him and we are looking to his power to accomplish it, it is a light burden. The other option is carrying around the darkness and the sin and the, and the chains and, and, and the addictions and all the things being, being weighed down by the forces of darkness, trying to live in a way other than what we were created for. Man, that's heavy. Man, trying, trying to, a fish trying to backstroke you know, through a field, man, he's having a hard day because he was made to be in the water, right? And that's, that's the difference here. Serving Jesus, uh, walking in, in the mold of, of the master, all of these things, it's, it's, it's lighter than it looks. And it would, it would look that way to us more if, we're, if our eyes were focused on him. And so I guess to just say it in plain speak for me, my, my hardest day with Jesus, if I'm thinking right, is much easier and better than my best day without him. And, and I know for some of us, we don't, we don't remember. We forget. Our memories are short, and that's part of our problem. we got to remember what it was like when that darkness was all we had, right? When, when there was no reason for hope, either now or forever. We've been given a, a beautiful task in serving the master. It's not as heavy as it seems. If we approach God's mission as if it all comes down to our strength and what we can do, we will end up having the same poor attitude that the disciples had in verse 37. Oh, what do you want us to do, Jesus? Spend six months worth of wages so the, everyone can have a bite of bread here? Now, I, also, I, don't, I just thought of this. This is not my notes, but Jesus' response here says a lot, doesn't it? Because they're, they're, kind of, they're mouthing off to Jesus, right? And it's like, you don't want to do that. This, this is the king of glory, right? This is the incarnate son of God that was there before the foundations of the earth. But man, his, his long-suffering patience is just on display again. Uh, and and I, I hope that means something for you. I know it means something for me because there's many times where uh, I may not think I'm being sassy with the Lord or I may not think I'm being disobedient, but come to find out, man, ignorance is not bliss. And I, I, I have in some way responded to him in a fashion other than yes, sir, which is the only ever right answer to Jesus. Uh, but I, I don't know. His, his compassion and long-suffering in dealing with his disciples gives me hope because I know as, as many times as I see them prone to not make solid decisions in their responses to Jesus and, and, and a lot of other ways, uh, I'm just thankful <laughs> the way he dealt with them that, that he'll also deal with me that way. He'll be patient. Jesus obviously knows that we need rest, right? We see that in verse 31. But we also have to see that rest and refreshing can come through spirit-empowered service to others. And I think that's sometimes what we miss. Sometimes we miss that by pouring out, we are actually being poured into if it's being done right. And, and this is something we should assess. When you're pouring yourself out for the sake of gospel mission, are you... Is it life-giving? That was the whole premise. That's the first premise we're making here, that serving Jesus can and should be life-giving. Well, when it's not, then maybe we're depending on ourselves. Maybe we're not looking at it right. Uh, maybe we're missing this simple point. Maybe we're just not aware that uh, it can absolutely be restful and refreshing to be a part of what Jesus is doing uh, and, and, and spirit-empowered service to others. Let me. I just want to paint for you the contrast of what the disciples thought the answer was and what actually happened to, to illustrate this. Uh, you know, preachers are always looking for illustrations. I'm just going to pull it right, out, right here out of the text, okay? So the disciples say to Jesus, 
this is a desolate place. Let's send them away so they can go buy something to eat. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. <laughs> okay, Jesus, so are what, is what you're telling us that you want us to spend six months' wages to buy enough bread for everyone to have a bite of bread here? Is that what you want us to do? Man, it's hard for me to even say that, like, in a narrative form. Talk, ugh. Man, don't talk back to Jesus. So that's what they did. I didn't, I'm not talking to him like that. That's how they talked to him. And, and, and what's his response? He says, what do you have? We got five loaves and two fishes. They bring it to him. So here's what, they hear the command from Jesus, okay, so you give them something to eat. We're not going to send them away. I love these people. I want you to love them. Let's meet their need. Okay? So they, and they hear that from Jesus. Where do they go? Right away. Okay, what, is, what it looks like for them is, okay, this means I, we're, maybe all 12 of us, we're going to have to hoof it into town. We're going to have to find a baker somewhere. We're going to have to find someone willing to sell us enough bread to do this thing. We're going to have to try to carry all this bread back here, and then we're going to have to try to feed all these people. This, this looks like an impossible task. It looked like a bunch of work. The whole thought process of it was probably exhausting and daunting and discouraging because they were looking at it from their angle. So that's what they, that was their initial reaction, how they thought, what, what, what they thought it was going to meant to obey Jesus in this. What happens instead? I'm going to give you an example of how it could be life-giving to serve Jesus. Instead of that scenario, which is what they imagined, here's how it goes instead. They bring him five loaves and two fishes. Jesus looks up to heaven. He thanks God for the food. He begins to break the bread. And he begins to hand pieces to his disciples. They walk with the first handful, and they start to lay it down in front of these groups of 50s and 100s. They go and they drop it down in front of the first one. They go back to Jesus. Can you imagine what they're expecting? They knew there was five loaves and two fishes. They know there's 12 of them. He's breaking up these little barley loaves and these, these little pieces of fish. They, they go down to set down the first thing of bread, and they're coming back. What are they thinking they're going to find when they get back there? Jesus is off his rocker because... I can do math, and I saw how much was there, but, here, but think about how life-giving and encouraging it would be to come back from that first drop-off of bread. Here they come back, and Jesus is there still breaking bread. They're like, well, that's pretty cool. So they take the next armful, and they run it to the next group of 50, and they set it down. They're like, I wonder if it'll happen again. Off back they go. How exciting would it be? I mean, of all the picnics, I'm ticked off about not getting an invitation to and a little bit jealous that I didn't get to go to. It's this one right here, man. I wish I could have been one of the guys carrying bread in this situation. Because the first couple times, I probably would have been a little hesitant, right? Like, whew, that wasn't very much when we started. But after the, after the fourth or fifth trip to these groups of 50 to 100, man, I, I just feel like I'd have a pep in my step. I feel like I'd be running back to see, whoo, it's still going. He's still crumbling. How is he doing that? Man, we're watching a miracle happen right in front of our eyes. And they get to keep going back to the master, picking up fistfuls of bread, armfuls of bread, and running it back to these people. And, and, and the pieces of fish, man, can you just imagine that? Do you see the difference, how life-giving that experience would be versus how they imagined it would go at first? And so often we never get past that first scenario in our minds because either A, we imagine what it looks like from our perspective to obey Jesus in something difficult, and we just jump out. I'm either not going to do it, I'm not willing, or I don't think I can do it, so instead of trying it and failing, I'm just not going to try. But what would happen, friends, if we obeyed him brought, him, brought him that little bit we had, set it down and let him make it into something beautiful? I'm just feeling like I don't care how tired I was. I don't care how long I'd been journeying. I don't care how hungry I was, how much sleep deprivation I was suffering from. If I got to be on the crew 
of guys running back and forth from the master to groups of 50s and 100s, taking miracle bread and seeing it multiply over and over again. I just feel like I'd have had a good attitude. You understand what I'm talking about? You see how it can be life-giving when Jesus is in the mix to serve him and to serve others. There's a difference, friends. There's a difference. Praise God. I think another thing that we can draw from this, and, and, and you've got to back up a little bit to understand the context. Uh, John the Baptist, right before this happened, John the Baptist had just been beheaded by King Herod. Uh, he was a friend of Jesus. Andrew, Peter's brother, was actually one of John the Baptist's disciples. Before he started to follow Jesus, these guys knew each other. They were on mission together. They were preaching the same message of the coming kingdom, okay? Uh, it's kind of a weird deal, but Herod ends up beheading John the Baptist. Literally, the next set of verses is where we started. And so part of what I want you to see from that is these guys, not only were they exhausted from the, the ministry trip they had just been on, not only were they exhausted from the, the people continuing to come and go, they were also dealing with this, this emotional situation, this loss of their friend and their ministry partner in, in a gruesome way. This is not just, I mean, death is always difficult when it's somebody you love and somebody you're close to, but this guy got beheaded for, I mean, so they're not only thinking about the loss of their friend, they're thinking about the fact that John the Baptist just got beheaded because he brought attention to himself the same way they are. So think about the complicated set of emotions that's going on there. Here's what I want you to see from that. Ministering through our pain, ministering to others through our pain, is actually one of the quickest paths to healing. And maybe, maybe that's a hard sell for you right off the bat, but again, I just want to say to you, let's, let's just add that to the mix. Everything we just said, all the factors we just said, but add also the fact that they're mourning the loss of their friend John the Baptist, just beheaded by uh, this, this evil ruler of the day. It doesn't mean I wouldn't still be grieving over my friend. It doesn't mean I wouldn't still be hurting. But I still, I still imagine myself being able to rejoice in the incredible nature of, of Jesus doing this miracle. Uh, and, 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 and the beauty of being able to serve these people with this miraculous provision in, in so doing, in, in pouring myself out in service to Jesus and others, can't you see how that can be part of how you don't get pulled into, not that, you know, mourning is not bad. Mourning is, is, a, is a right response, but sometimes mourning and, 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 and pain over loss can, can take us over and it can, it can take us farther than it should into places of, of darkness that we shouldn't be. And the truth is that when you're struggling, when you're in the middle of a place of difficulty, when you're going through your own dark season, some of you know this experientially, uh, that it is better to give than receive, whether you're having a great time or you're struggling. And I think most, most of us are wired to think, if I'm having a hard time, then I need to seek to be ministered to. And of course, that is a part of the picture of you being in the body of Christ, loved well. If you're struggling, you should be ministered to. People should be willing to come and love and pour in to you. But oftentimes, part of what we're missing, I think, in, in seeing full healing emotionally and in, in, in difficult situations is is we only look to receive being ministered to and, and loved on and helped, uh, and we don't see as a part of our healing process pouring into others and loving others. And I just, I've had conversations with several of you over the last month or two that have told me 
not because I coached you into this, you came and told me, this is my situation, it's incredibly difficult, I'm struggling in these following ways, this, this situation looks really hopeless, but it seems like Jesus just keeps bringing me people that are in similar situations or a different tough situation, and I, I, it's unbelievable. I keep being able to talk to them out of my difficult situation. We find a point of being able to relate, and, and I, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm talking about guys in the middle of office, in their office, in places where you, you don't expect you know, prayer to be breaking out. There's, there's such a deep connection because you're both going through something and, and, and they're willing to be used by Jesus in the midst of that pain. Uh, we've got people crying and hugging in the middle of, of offices and you know, managers and supervisors getting called and trying to give them a hard time. They're like, look, this, I'm going to do this. So you know, if, if, that's, if that's a deal breaker, then you're going to have to fire me. Uh, and I'm just telling you that um, it, it, it's, hard, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around but there is healing in pouring out and loving others. And so even when you don't feel like you have anything to give, if you'll allow Christ to empower you, if you'll allow him to make the connections, even out of your hurt, even out of your story and out of your struggle, you can pour hope and life into somebody else. And, and you will find on the other side of that healing you could not have found any other way. Because you can see, part of why it works, friend, think about this. If you can see the beauty of how your struggle, Jesus, you're watching actively the promise come true, that he's working all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose, right? So you're struggling. You're in the middle of, of darkness and, and you're hurting and, and someone comes along your path that you're able, to, you're able to speak life and hope to them out of your experience. You're already seeing, right, like in real time, the beauty of how God can take broken things and make them beautiful, how he takes and makes beauty out of ashes. He, he does that all the time, and he'll do that in your life if you'll be open and willing to it. So I, I would commit that to you, um, and I'm thankful that it's true. The second thing, uh, so that was, the first was that ministry with Jesus is life-giving. It should be. The second here is that we see God cares about meeting physical and spiritual needs. God cares about meeting physical and spiritual needs. This may seem like it goes without saying, but man, there's, there's more confusion around this than, than I think oftentimes we understand. So first of all, let's look at verse 34, okay? Verse 34, what does it say? When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And when he began to teach them, and he began to teach them many things. Okay, so first of all, Jesus sees this large crowd. It's obvious they've just emptied out of the cities and chased him on foot to catch him, all right? So there's obviously a sense of desperation in this group of people. They're looking for something. Uh, they're hungry, obviously, in more ways than one. And so Jesus' first response, he's, he's moved with compassion upon them. That compassion initially, I think, is missing in the disciples. There's a contrast there we need to observe. And so what does, he, what does he go into directly? He doesn't go to the meal first. First, he begins to teach them many things. And so the first need Jesus addresses in these folks, the first priority is this spiritual need they have. So he begins to preach. He begins to teach. His message up until now has been pretty consistent. He's, pre he's preaching the coming kingdom. He's preaching hope. He's preaching the fact that God has been faithful to his promises, and you're seeing it unfold, right? And so he's sowing hope into people that have largely become hopeless. And so 
he begins to teach them many things. So he addresses those spiritual, emotional needs. Uh, he's compassionate, compassionate upon it. Um, but but he, doesn't, he doesn't stop there. And that's oftentimes I hear this, this false dichotomy set up of, well, are we going to be gospel-centered ministries or are we going to be mercy-centered ministries? And what people mean when they say that, are we going to focus more on addressing people's need for the gospel or are we going to focus more on the fact that people have physical needs? And I, I, it, I don't want to be frustrated. I'm trying not to be frustrated. I'm just like, yes, right? Like, why... Is there two sides there? Like all that goes together. And if you need any more vibrant of an example than this right here, I, there's something wrong with you, <laughs> right? Like Jesus obviously cared about the whole person. Yes, he addressed the emotional and the spiritual and did it, in no way did that take a back seat. But he also didn't feel like any of what he was doing, teaching them about spiritual things was harmed in any way by meeting and addressing their physical needs. And so uh, oftentimes there's, there's confusion around that. L let me read this to you. This is James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself, right? So we have to be clear here. Uh, this, <laughs> this set of verses can get people up in arms real fast, so let's, let's just make sure we say it. Uh, first of all, the whole idea here is, is not necessarily about feeding and clothing. He's using that as an example of the fact that faith without works is dead. And what he means when he says that is not that, by any stretch of the imagination, that our salvation is based upon works. The Bible's very clear about that. We are saved by uh, grace through faith in Christ alone. Bottom line, period, that's it. But the argument James is making here, and it's made elsewhere in the scriptures, is faith will never be by itself. Faith always has a buddy, and he's always there, and his name is works. And he's going. So if, if faith has happened, right, if grace has seized the heart of a person, and they have experienced the mercy and the love of Christ, it will always follow that there will be works. You will, and that's his whole point here. He goes on to say, you know, show me your faith. I'll show you my works. And that's how you'll know I have faith, right? There's going to be action that comes along. I'm glad Jesus didn't have the faith that some people have, right? I'm glad he didn't come to earth and just talk a bunch and then disappear. No, his, his works was, his, his love and his, his faith was proven as he went all the way to the cross, shed his blood, uh, he, put, he, he put action where his words were, um, and you could tell that he, he was about the Father's business in a real way. And so I'm thankful for that. Uh, if, if, if you've ever, if you've ever uh, been downtown with us uh, when we do homeless outreach on Wednesday evenings, you've probably heard me say something to this effect, and, and we say it almost every week because we are so prone to, for whatever reason, get, get into that, that weird area where we're not sure if, if gospel ministry and, and meeting people's spiritual needs, how that goes hand in hand with meeting physical needs. And, 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 and I get the concern. Some, sometimes it's a reaction to this. 
and this is a real thing, so don't, I don't want to minimize this. Sometimes what happens is we get too focused on meeting physical needs uh, because that's, that you can kind of tangibly measure results that way, and, and there's a lot of reasons why. Sometimes we get overly focused on that, and, and we can forget that meeting those physical needs is, is only part of addressing the whole person, uh, and if we don't meet the spiritual needs and, and we don't speak to the great need we all share for the gospel, uh, then we're, we're not doing the whole job. Um, I've often said it this way to, to kind of simplify it. We can't, we can't throw sandwiches at drowning people, and we can't just give words to starving people, right? I know this is kind of a funny image, but if, if, you walk, if you're walking down a, a riverbank and there's somebody out there flailing and, and obviously drowning, and you toss them the rest of your Subway sandwich, like, here you go, buddy, you, you haven't helped, you haven't done a whole lot. And, and part of sometimes I think why we struggle with staying faithful in gospel ministry when we take on big tasks of compassion ministry and meeting physical needs for people, sometimes why we struggle is because we don't actually believe that somebody who at this very moment is devoid of faith in Christ is in as much trouble as the person that you would see drowning in that water. That's part of our problem. Part of how we get away from gospel faithfulness is, is we kind of let be watered down the issue of sin, right? And we kind of, we fall into this cultural idea, well, everybody's basically a good person and, you know, well, Jesus is really merciful and hey, man, all these things are true. Jesus is unimaginably merciful, but he's also just. And there is one way to be reconciled to God the Father, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And if somebody does not have faith in Jesus Christ, if they have not been either preached if that beautiful message has not been laid before them so that they could receive it by faith, or if they have heard it and rejected it, they are in no better shape eternally than the person is physically that's out there drowning in water. And here's my problem. We can't go downtown on Wednesday night and toss sandwiches at people that are dying in their sin and think we've done anything, because we haven't. We've got to keep going. We have to do everything we can to address the, the, the same spiritual need we have, they have. And so that's why we ask questions. That's why we try to build relationships. That's why we're looking to pray with folks, find out their story, see where they stand with the Lord Jesus. And so uh, we have to have a holistic view of how we address uh, ministry of all kinds, and, and we need to go in the model of Jesus. Because sometimes on the other end, in order to... So our problem is we're, we overcorrect all the time. And so if somebody's like, oh, look, at, there's a bunch of people over here. They're, they're forgetting about the gospel, and they're, and they're just meeting physical needs, and they're thinking that in so doing, right? Because you hear people say that. Things like, um, oh, what's the verbiage? Uh, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, right? You guys ready to have a sacred cow tip? I know some of you like that. You probably got it on your Facebook. My favorite quote. It's wrong, okay? That quote's no good. That's garbage, okay? Because people are not going to get the gospel simply by you doing a good deed. You handing somebody a meal that's hungry does not let them know every single one of us is in trouble because of sin, and Jesus Christ is the only answer to that. Now, I'm a 100% believer that I'm going to have a lot better chance having a conversation about Jesus if I hand a hungry person something to eat before I try to talk to them. And I think it's cold-hearted to walk up to somebody that's starving and start trying to have a gospel conversation with them. Man, address the need. Love them right where they're at. Help them right where they're at. And, and then talk. I think, that's, I think that's a better model. I think it fits what the Lord Jesus has, has exhibited for us. So but what, what I was saying is sometimes people will, will, will see that, that way over correction to just meeting physical needs, and, and then they get, all, they get away from that altogether because, well, somebody did it wrong, so we're just, we're just not going to do that, and we're, we'll, we'll just preach the gospel. 
that's great. At least you're preaching the gospel, but I, you're, you have a lot of verses that are going to be problematic for you about Jesus commanding us to meet the needs of the poor, about him commanding us to care about physical needs, about him giving us this example of feeding 5,000. If these things weren't important, Jesus had compassion on them, not just the fact that they were sheep without a shepherd, but he obviously also cared about the fact that their stomachs were hungry. Because the disciples had an answer to this situation, didn't they? Hey, Jesus, it's late. We're out in the middle of nowhere. Would you send them out of here? We want that rest time that you were telling us about earlier. Would you get them out of here and let them go buy something to eat? What was Jesus' response? Nope. You give them something to eat. We're going to meet that need. Praise the Lord. We can do all of it. And, and, and here's what I'm talking about. Some of you right now, you're calculating what that means. Man, that's, that's a big deal to have to care about and be a part of meeting people's physical needs and care about that, but also care about and, 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 and be active in addressing their spiritual need. That's a lot to handle, and it starts to feel, but let's not do what the disciples did. Let's remember that Jesus is in this thing. We can't juggle all that, and we'll never get that right, and we won't have any effectiveness on gospel mission, if Jesus is not a part of what we're doing, if he's not at the center of it, and if he, it's not all that we do is not empowered by him and by his spirit. We need his help, or else we'll fall flat on our faces. So praise God that he's promised to help us. Amen. We don't have to do this on our own. Uh, if we look at verse 41, we're going to see a beautiful truth here. It's that God doesn't need you involved in his plans, but he wants you. Let's look at, let's look at verse 41 again uh, together. Unfortunately, this story is split on two pages for me, so you're hearing the, the flip back and forth. Uh, verse 41, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. I already kind of explained this to you of how it went, and it was part of an earlier premise, but Jesus, again, he could have done this so many ways, guys. This is Jesus we're talking about. He could have snapped his finger, and you know there would have been filet mignon and, and lobster tail in, in the middle of every group of 50, right? This is Jesus we're talking about. Unlimited resources and power. I think there's something to be said with the simplicity of what he did here. I think it's intentional that it's bread. We'll get to that in a moment. But also, Jesus didn't have to have the disciples help here. You get that. He could have got the bread to the people probably an easier way even than the way he did it. So what's he doing? He's involving them intentionally. And he didn't need them, but he wanted them. I've, I've fought with myself back and forth about I, don't, I try not to reuse analogies too much because I don't want it to become just kind of a din in your ears, but I can't think of a better way to illustrate this point than, than this idea. In the same way that, that God doesn't need us involved in his redemptive purposes, but has chosen to bring us in and allows us to be a part of what he's doing, it, it's, maybe I'm just limited because it's this, this so crystal clear for me and, and helps me to understand what God's doing, but Anytime I'm doing a project around the house, my son, Max, he'll be four in July. Uh, if he's awake, he is right in the middle of my business, right? And so it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm fixing a drawer, I'm doing this or whatever. He's, he's right up in it. He wants to know what all the tools do. He wants to hold the tools. 
and, and he went, you know, Dad, I want to screw the screw. Son, this is so dangerous. Oh, okay, come on, let's do it. You know, so, uh, but he, he, he wants to be in it. He wants to help me. He wants to carry this. He wants, and, and listen, here's, here's the, the cold truth. I could get that project done at least 100% faster if he was not involved. I promise you that's true because I got to be careful for him, make sure I don't run a drill bit into his arm or whatever. You know what I mean? So I got to watch out for him and I got to mess with him and let him do the things. And so I could get it done 100% faster, but I also promise you, even as an imperfect earthly father, I get this. I, I get this. I would so much rather have him there messing with me in that project than get it done 100% faster. It's so cool that he wants to do what dad wants to do. It's so fun for me that he wants to know what the tools do and where, how do I get this light to come on and, and, and how, how does this work, dad? And uh, He doesn't get it half the time anyways. And, and do you see the analogy? Do you see how God the Father, friends, he doesn't need us. Jesus didn't need the disciples in this mix, but he wanted them. Is that precious to you? I hope it matters to you. Like, like a good father letting his little boy slow him down, <laughs> just to let him be a part. God wants you to be a part. I hope, I hope that that does something in your heart. I hope gospel mission looks different to you as you understand that. Do you understand all of the broad redemptive plan of God could be accomplished without you? And yet, as cumbersome as we make it by him letting us be a part and actually setting the mantle of of spreading this gospel to all of the earth, he's given us, that, that primary responsibility for that sits upon us. He's allowed us in. Because he wants to, guys, we're going to spend eternity rejoicing in this gospel. And it's going to be that much sweeter that we got to be a part of what dad was doing. As we sing of his glory and we rejoice together forever, remembering that we got to be a part of this mission. He could have, he could have done this so many other ways. Even if he would have just cut me out, it probably would have made it easier for him. <laughs> I know that for sure. But he's so good to me. He wants me near him. And he wants, as, as, as bumbly and cumbersome as I can make it, he, he, he loves me. And he loves you. And uh, I'm really glad about that. And we see that here. We see that plainly. He let the disciples get their hands in this. This took so much longer than if he would have just snapped bread is in front of everyone. But he's intentional. He's intentional, friends. He's doing it intentionally. And the way he was intentional with them, he's intentional with you. And I hope that matters to you. I think the next thing we can see here is that uh, God is a God of more than enough. How do I see that? Verse 42. They all ate and were satisfied. Verse 43, and they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And so Jesus didn't just do a miracle here. He did a miracle that, that showed in a beautiful, vibrant, full-color way that God is a God of more than enough. And, and I, I don't know if you've had an experience in your life to, to see this illustrated. I think we see it here. We see it throughout the rest of the scriptures. Uh, for example, this just came to me. God doesn't just get his children out of Egypt, right? He doesn't just get them out. He doesn't just rescue them from slavery, which is awesome, right? He sends Moses in, plagues. Like, this is, this is a rad display of God's power. Did he say rad? Yes, child of the early 80s. So um, it, it's still 
it jumps out sometimes. I can't, the filter doesn't catch it. So, yeah, but that, I mean, we're talking about an awesome display of God's power. If he had just got his kids out of Egypt, he deserves a slow clap, right? Yes. Yay, God. But that's not it. Not only does he get his kids out of Egypt, not only does he deliver his people from Pharaoh, but they go out wearing all the Egyptians' gold and stuff, right? Like, not only are you getting free, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you with a blessing. And so God is a God of more than enough. God is not taxed by your need, my need, or any of our needs. He displays that here. Uh, he's displayed it in the life of this church from the beginning. Um, you know, we, we started in, in a pretty meager fashion, and God has breathed upon this fellowship. Uh, he's given us a mission. He's sustained us. We've, we've broken all the, the statistics that say that most churches, after five years, the doors are closed, they can't make it, and that's ones that have a bunch of funding. Uh, the, the very fact that we exist is, is an undeniable stamp or fingerprint of God upon what we're doing, and so I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful for that. One particular way that God in the life of this church has made this truth vibrantly clear is a few years ago, uh, we took on uh, a task by faith. Uh, my friend, Pastor Daniel in Mexico, uh, that we were just down there this year, uh, he, he called me and, and they, they had two families that uh, I think someone had committed to paying for them to have a house built and uh, something happened. They weren't able to come through and so they had these folks that they had said, yes, your house is going to be built. Um, and so for them, and, and if I don't have pictures of what they were living in, but it, it was not good. Very terrible conditions. So they had been told, hey, and by this date, somebody's going to come and build this house. And then they, had to, then they thought they were going to have to tell him, no, not, you know, we can't get that done now. And so he called us, and we were like, you know what, man? We don't, I think it was, I think the number was uh, $13,000. I think it was $6,500 per house. And it was two houses. And uh, we just decided by faith, man, we were going to go for it. And we weren't that unlike the disciples in this situation. Because Jesus says, look at what you got. And they're like, well, we got five barley loaves and two fish. And like commentators say that's enough for maybe three people to eat, like if you're eating light. And uh, when, we, when we agreed to build these houses, um, I, I had, a, I had a, a faith money commitment from one person, and that was me. I, I knew I was going to put 100 bucks in the deal. But that's all I knew I had, right? That was all we knew we had. Uh, but we... <laughs> Leaders got together and, and a few others, and we said, you know what, We're, I believe we can trust God about this. And guys, I kid you not, um, I, almost out of nowhere, money started pouring in. I, I still can't explain it to this day, to the point that we ended up with several thousand dollars more than the $13,000 we needed. And that was how, if you got to see the video of when we were there last year, uh, or this year rather, we stood in the place where we were able to buy the land with the extra money that God brought in. We were able to buy the land for the, uh, one of the church plants. That church now stands in a community today because God is a God of more than enough. Uh, and I just want to say to you that um, these guys weren't faith giants necessarily, and, and neither were we. We, ju we just trusted God, and, and, and he can and will provide. And there's something about faith like that that pleases him, and he responds and so, not just, you know, I, I'm so happy that happened for a couple reasons. One, we got to build two houses for people that desperately needed them. That was beautiful. 
Uh, we had extra to buy the land for a church plant. It was a huge hurdle for them. This, this church was not going to get planted in this community unless they could come up with this money. Boom, God provides that money. Praise God for that. That's so cool. But the, the third and, and maybe biggest reason is now I get to tell that story. And so for you, I, I don't know, if you've got stories like that, man, keep those close and keep them ready and, and, and share the good things God has done. And if you, if you don't have a story like that, begin to trust God by faith, man. He is a God of more than enough. Um, and, and, and you see him, you see him walk in that reality uh, most when, when it comes down to not necessarily pouring more resources than you need on you so that you can increase your standard of living or whatever it is. But if God finds a person that by faith will trust him to put resources into their hands so that they can be a blessing to someone else, just watch. Just wait and watch what God will do. He, he will give seed to the sower. He's going to do it. He said he would. He's looking for people that are willing to funnel his resources to people that need them. And uh, it's such a privilege to be a part of that. God didn't need us to build those two houses. You understand what I'm saying? But he let us. He let us be a part of that and see him be faithful in that way. It's glorious. There is, there is some deep gospel gold in this set of verses if, if we're willing to dig and we know how to look. Again, I'm going to refer one more time to John's account of this because uh, it fills in a gap that Mark, neither Mark, Matthew, or Luke include. John gives us the detail that it was close at this time uh, to the Feast of Passover. That means it's very likely these people, these crowds... May have, many of them may have, may have even been sojourners coming to uh, Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And so that means everybody's got a very specific image on their mind. Their focus is upon this idea of the Passover feast. Well, what was that? I referred to it earlier, and I actually didn't mean to tie all that together, but glory to God, there you go. A uh, little loop for you. Um, so what is the Passover? The Passover feast is remembering the Exodus. It's remembering God's people coming out of Egypt. And so what happened? Well, uh, there's a plague that all of the firstborn of Egypt are going to die if Pharaoh doesn't let God's people go. Pharaoh says, you know, I'm not going to do it. I'm God. And it goes bad for him. So, but God tells his people to have a, uh, kill a lamb and spread the, the blood over the doorposts. And then the, the Passover, the reason it's called Passover is that that death angel would pass over their homes. And uh, that plague would not touch their homes. And so the people of Israel had a feast every year to remember that, still do today. Um, and, uh, you know, communion is, is very much a, a type and a shadow of that. Uh, and, of course, that Passover lamb, that blood over the door, uh, you know, where, where death then couldn't touch them, was, was pointing forward to Jesus, the perfect lamb of God for us. And so uh, it is time of Passover. Uh, and, and that so everybody in this situation. It's, it's, it's that season, so they're thinking about that. That imagery is in their mind, and that makes what Jesus does here with this bread even deeper. Uh, and it, it conjures, it would conjure some things for them. And really what you had here, I called it a picnic earlier, but it, it looked very much for them like a Passover meal. You had, you had Jesus at the head of this thing. He's, he's breaking bread, uh, which would have been a part of it. The, the, the big difference is, you, at the Passover meal, they always ate lamb, here they didn't have lamb, uh, but part of the reason for that is because the lamb of God, the, the final lamb, the perfect lamb, was 
was sitting at the head of the thing, serving out the bread. And so the Lamb of God was, was giving out this, this life-sustaining bread, meeting that physical hunger after he had just got done preaching the good news of the kingdom and meeting uh, that spiritual hunger that they had. And so there's some depth there. Uh, Jesus is also painting a deliberate picture here in verse 39. He, he does this action that might seem innocuous to us, but it, it had a lot of meaning, and it meant something to these people. And part of how you know is, right after this miracle, uh, several accounts, most, most of the Gospels go into Jesus walking on water. But what happened in between was, Jesus told the disciples, you guys get in the boat. Remember, they, he sent them in the boat out onto the sea, and then he went to pray. What was going on right then is, Jesus had to disperse this crowd. After this miracle, after the details of how Jesus did what he did in this place, the, the crowd was so whipped into a messianic frenzy that he had to get the disciples out of there, and he had to try to smooth that thing over because it was, they were going to try to force him to be their king. So something about what he did here spoke to them so deeply. They were like, this is the guy. This is the guy that's come to save us. This is the Messiah we're looking for. And they were ready to roll. And Jesus had to like tell him to chill out a little bit. It's not time yet. Got the disciples out of Dodge, and then he ran. Okay, so uh, we know there's something deep here, and, and we might miss it. Here's one thing he did, verse 39. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. To sit down by groups on the green grass. You might think, well, yeah, they're about to eat. Makes sense. The reality is they could have stood. Uh, there's something very specific he's doing here. Let me read you. This is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. They're not too far from the sea. Jesus makes them all sit down in this green grass. What's he start doing? Starts breaking bread, passing it out. They saw something here, friends. It might go over your head, but it didn't go over theirs. Because they wanted this guy to be king right now, right after this miracle. I, this is the one we're looking for. Jesus has them sit down in that grass, and, and you see it even in the language. How is Jesus' compassion is stirred? Why? He says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's all there. The intentionality, the whole thing. Jesus is never just doing what you think he's doing on the surface. He's working a plan. And that plan of redemption extends on through to today. And it's extending through the events of your life. And so, friend, in the moments where you feel tempted to despair and you feel like nothing's making sense, just please see. Remember, remember these miracle accounts. Remember that invariably we've been able to see that Jesus is doing something intentional that ties into the overall redemptive plan of God in the midst of doing this amazing thing that we can see on the surface. He's always working in the details. Praise God for that. What Jesus does with this bread points to his ultimate redemptive purpose. Uh, here, here's, here's part of, this is where I meant you have to kind of dig a little bit for the gold. So he, he's got bread here, right? What do you make bread out of? You make it out of flour. What do you make flour out of? You make it out of wheat, right? And so here, what Jesus has in his hand is this wheat that's been taken, processed into flour, and then made into bread. Now, what happens... Let's say we take some wheat, we process it down to flour, we put it in little, uh, let's say burlap, just so you have a full imaginative picture in your mind, a little burlap baggie, and you plant little baggies of flour in the ground, 
processed flour? What's going to happen? What if you slice up a, a big thing of bread and you dig little holes and you plant some bread, cover it up, put water on it? What's, what's going to happen? A big bunch of nothing, right? But before man got in the mix and processed the flour and made the bread, what you had was grain. That grain has seeds in it. If you just leave it alone, you don't do anything with it, that wheat, what that wheat's going to do is it's going to shed seeds that are living because when they go down and hit the ground and they get covered up, what happens? Something grows. That wheat, if you just leave it alone, will multiply itself and it'll just keep spreading out. I know some of you are like, what is it? What is this, Bill Nye the Science Guy? Is this a seed germination class? No, hold on. Just track with me a second. This matters. What Jesus had in his hand was something dead that could not multiply itself. But what did he do with it? Jesus took something that was dead and couldn't multiply itself. And what did he make it do, friend? He made it multiply itself. He overcame the fact that that bread no longer in and of itself, that bread had no strength to grow or multiply or make itself in anything else, it was stuck right where it was. It was dead. It could only do that one purpose. Get it in the hands of Jesus. And what does he do? That thing starts multiplying again. He takes something that's dead and gives it the power again to bring life to others. Friend, he did the same thing with you. You were dead in your sin. You couldn't have any positive effect in multiplying the gospel or anything without Jesus getting his hands on you. But once he got his hands on you, and once he began to work in you, he made you alive again and able to be a part of his plan of multiplying disciples throughout the earth, throughout all of redemptive history. The gospel is staring at us right in the face in the midst of this thing. Because that's what the whole gospel's about. Taking people dead and hopeless in their sin with no chance of being a benefit to anybody else or themselves and makes them into a force of multiplication, a force of blessing for others. Jesus just kept breaking that bread, man. And it kept multiplying. And that's what he's doing in us with the gospel. He's taking dead men and women and he's making them alive again. He's taking people that were overcome by darkness and he's filling them full of light. He's taking people that had nothing going for them. He's making the salt and light of the earth and putting upon them a mission and giving them a commission to go into this earth and take the good news of the gospel to as many people as possible. Praise God. Dead things don't stay dead anymore when Jesus gets a hold of them. Makes them into something useful and multiplies their effect. Hallelujah. John 6, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. All who come to me will never hunger again. He wasn't just feeding some people bread in the grass that day, guys. He's painting a picture. He's telling a story. He's letting you know this thing's moving along. This plan of the Father, it's happening. If you know how to look, you'll be able to rejoice in it. And if you see it happening here, and you understand what he's doing here, and you understand he's still doing it today, it'll give you hope in those times when it's hard to believe. He's working. He's working in the details. I know you don't see them all, but trust him. Praise God. May we be a people who experience the life-giving joy of obedient service to Jesus. May we be a people of compassion who are eager to meet both spiritual and physical needs, just like our master. And may we trust our God completely, knowing his plan is perfect, down to the last detail for our good and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord.
for the beautiful depth of this miracle recorded by every gospel writer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you show us so much about yourself in the way that you treated everybody in this situation, by the way you deal with your disciples who are grumpy and tired and hungry, and their, their patience is getting low, and they're, they're getting mouthy, the way you're long-suffering with them, and you bring them in to see the joy of serving if they rely upon your strength, and if they let you be the force of power in the situation, how beautiful it can be to serve you, how, how much energy and life can come from pouring ourselves out in service and obedience to you. Thank you for that truth, O oh God. Thank you for being patient with your disciples and, and, and giving us hope that you'll be patient with us when we don't respond correctly. Lord, we ask for your grace and mercy to not be short-sighted and not be impatient, not be quick to try to judge you. Uh, but Lord, may we always submit humbly to what it is you're doing. But when we fail at that, I thank you that you're long-suffering. I thank you, Lord, for your compassion upon the crowds in this story. I thank you for all that it tells us about you, that you see them like, like a sheep like sheep without a shepherd, and that that moves your heart, and that you begin to teach them, and you begin to encourage them, and speak hope and life to them, and, and, and you care about addressing those deep spiritual and even emotional needs that they have. But at the very same time, as their stomachs begin to grumble, you care about the whole person, and you want to meet their physical needs as well. I thank you, God, that you have made it a wide open invitation for us to come to you to bring our needs, whether they be spiritual, emotional, or physical, that we can come to you and trust that you're going to care about it. God, that means so much to us that we don't have to try to be super spiritual when we come to you, but we can come and you want to hear our needs and that you promise to address them. Lord, I thank you for what you teach us and the fact that you didn't serve steak at this picnic, but you served bread. Not only were you painting a picture, not only was there deep layers of truth being unveiled here, but Lord, may we just see that you've promised to meet needs. Sometimes we, our imagination, our needs are different than what they really are, God. Help us to submit to the fact that you've promised to meet our needs. Sometimes our wants are not actually good for us. Lord, we admit that. And for any time that we've been impatient or, or spoken harshly to you because you didn't meet a want of ours, Lord, we, we humbly submit and repent about that. We say that you know better than we do. And we love you, Lord. We thank you that you're a God of more than enough. We thank you that you are not taxed by the needs of your people. We thank you that even all the forces of darkness raging against your plan of redemption, you don't break a sweat, that you, O oh God, are sovereign and supreme, that your power is unchallenged, and that you've allowed us to be your children, and that you have called us into service to come alongside you and be a part of your redemptive plan throughout history. I thank you, God, we're going to get to celebrate with you forever all that you've done and all that you're doing and all that you're going to do and that you've involved us. Thank you that we get to be a part of what you're doing. Thank you. I know, it, I know it's harder than if you just did it yourself. I know sometimes, Lord, we make it complicated, but I thank you that you love us that much, that you desire us to be with you. Lord, we are overcome with gratitude. We are overcome with love for you. We are thankful people today. Help us to live like it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.com.
www.thepeopleofgod.org.